Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Today, I have a special guest. Once again, the honor of saying welcome, Your Honor, to Judge Carla Wong McMillan. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. Thank you, B.J. I'm glad to be here. So Judge McMillan um, is an appellate judge, um, the Georgia Court of Appeals. She has served um, on the, in the as a trial judge prior to taking the, the appellate bench. And she has the distinction, and that's where I want to actually start with you, if I can, of being the first Asian Pacific judge in the Southeast on an appellate court. And... Candidly, you know, having practiced law for a long time, I was kind of surprised that that is, in fact, the case. So if you and your journey, I've heard a little bit about of being the first in your family, obviously, to reach this level and um, being Chinese immigrants. If you could kind of trace and share with us your story of um, coming to the bench and and becoming the a first um, in the Southeast as the appellate judge with this heritage. Well, thank you, BJ. I guess I'll start my story with my grandparents. They immigrated from China in the uh, early 1900s uh, and settled in Augusta, which many people uh, know for the masters, but they don't know that the Chinese community has long roots there, uh, stemming back to the 1800s when Chinese laborers were brought in to help build an extension of the Augusta Canal. And my understanding is that some of those laborers stayed on and told their family and friends back in China about Augusta being a great place to live. And my grandfather was one of those people. And he came to Augusta and started operating a grocery store there. Didn't know the language, didn't know anything about the culture. And my dad was actually born in that family grocery store. So growing up, I didn't have much contact with the justice system, except my mom is from Hong Kong. And we went to federal court when I was little for her naturalization ceremony. But other than that, I really didn't know anything about the law. So, you know, I went to high school, went to college at Duke and didn't know what I wanted to do other than I loved history, I loved economics, and law school became a possibility. So I just I understand I just the jury <laughs> journey. I was a history major myself, and I remember my dad saying to me, "What are you going to do with the history degree?" And I said, "Well, I think I'll maybe use it towards law," and that made it a little bit easier for him to to uh, accept that that was you know choosing your passion to study at the undergraduate level, but then looking for a career in the future. Well, I'm sure my parents wanted me to be a doctor because my (laughs) Aunt Margaret was actually a a doctor, went to the Medical College of Georgia um, in during World War II. And she I'm really proud of her because she was the first Asian American woman to get an MD in the Southeast. So I'm not the first in my family, uh, which is 
a little incredible, but um, but I, I did not follow in the footsteps of my Aunt Margaret, went to law school. After law school, went and worked for um, Judge O'Kelly in the Northern District of Georgia for a year, a clerked fed, for him, a federal, a federal judge. judge. And then uh, was at a large law firm for many years. As Bell and Brennan, which those folks who are around Georgia, but we have, you know, a national audience, is is truly one of the finest firms in the state of Georgia and has a national presence as well. So you did well in law school, I would guess, to land a job at such a prestigious firm. Well, I my husband and I actually went to law school together and (laughs) He and I joke because he was a little behind me in the class. I did beat him in the class. So. <laughs> but yes, um, I, I worked at Sutherland, did a lot of trial work there, a lot of appellate work there as well, and really enjoyed my time there. Really never thought of anything but staying there for the rest of my career until some judgeships opened in my uh, local jurisdiction. And then I, I started thinking about being a judge. And you, did you get appointed to your first judgeship or did you run? I was appointed to my first judgeship. There were here in Georgia, uh, when there's a vacancy, a judge may resign or retire. If there's a vacancy uh, between elections, the governor gets to appoint. It's not like the federal level where you see all these co- the confirmation hearings before the Senate and it's really contentious. Here in Georgia, the governor just gets to pick. And, and there are other states like that yes. as well. Yes. And so I was appointed to my first position as state court in Fayette County, but by Governor Sonny Perdue in uh, 2010. But the uh, the thing is, even if you're appointed as a judge, then you subsequently have to run in the next general election. So I had my first election in 2012. And, and frankly, the idea of being elected as a judge almost maybe not, uh, not apply for that judgeship. Just having to run for office was not something I guess you contemplated before or? No, I was just, I I knew how to be a lawyer. I knew how to think. I knew how to write. I just didn't know if I could run for election and put myself out there. I was not trained for that. I was a little afraid about doing that. And so I'd pretty much had told my husband I wasn't going to apply for the trial judgeship. But what changed my mind were my two kids. At the time, they were three and seven. I have a boy and a girl. And especially um, for my daughter, I wanted to be able to talk to her about not staying uh, comfortable and taking a risk and seizing an opportunity to to serve the community when I could. So um, they changed my mind and I put in and I was honored when Governor Perdue appointed me to the state court of Fayette County. But. You've, you've, as you mentioned, you also ran for election. I think one of your races were was contested. Yes, my first race, my my fears came true as soon as I got appointed. Um, actually, just several months after, I was uh, informed that I was going going to have an opponent in my first election. So it was off to the races. Started campaigning, campaigned for about a year. Um, but campaigning is, you know, campaigning is different for a, for a judge. And I know from neighbors and friends who are not lawyers, you know, you're not picking a political party to run under starting out. I know when people sometimes people go into the voting booth and say, I'm just going to pull the Democrat lever or the Republican lever and just vote that way or they pick by party. That's not possible with with a judicial race. You are nonpartisan. So how do you campaign when you're not you're supposed to 
stay in that realm of being a judge and being fair and impartial and yet conveying to a voter why they should select you. Yeah, it's a fine line. We judges do uh, operate under a code of judicial conduct. So the the code tells us what we can and can't do in an election. And um, a lot of things we can't do. I mean, we can't affiliate with the with a political party. We're nonpartisan. We can't talk about our cases. Uh, we can't talk about what we would do in future cases because we can't decide any, we shouldn't be deciding anything in advance. So, And, and that's really yes. hard for an electorate that is literally, you know, usually has a checklist. Are you pro this or, pro, or against that? And, you know, a lot of people have a lot of strong feelings about things that are going on in the country. And so they're used to wanting to ask that question. So how are you dealing with that? And how do you let them know you should be the one. Well, what you can do as a judge is talk about your record, talk about the work that you've done uh, on the bench, but also in the community. Judges, we're public officials, and I do think that we have a duty to um, make ourselves known in the community. It's because we're accountable to the community, ultimately, the voters you know, for our positions. So um, talk a lot about how we are fair and impartial and that seemed to work for me. And now, you know, you started off as a trial judge. And during that time period, I want to kind of go into that experience there a little bit with some advice for our listeners when they are before a judge in the, in the trial setting um, or they are in the courtroom for a hearing, um, perhaps in a divorce or, or there's so many different reasons to be into court. But, you know, it's all about, at least for the lawyers, you're trying to catch the attention of the judge and the respect of the judge to go with what you're arguing. But that trickles down to how the client is is acting in court as well, I would think. And can you kind of share some tips on, for our listeners when they do have to be in court? Well, absolutely. The first thing I would encourage everyone to do is find a lawyer. I, I had many, many cases where people were representing themselves. And of course, you have the absolute right to do that. But it's just harder because you don't know the rules. So I would say if you can afford a lawyer and can find a lawyer, please do use a lawyer. Um, and then if once you're um, the client to that lawyer, then listen to their advice. Um, and then when you go to court, I think it's important uh, for clients to realize that the judge and if there's a jury trial, the jurors are watching you not just listening to the lawyer. So come to court presenting yourself in a way that you want people to uh, to view you. I mean, if you want to show that you're an upstanding business person, uh, even though you're being sued, then come to court looking like an upstanding business person. Um, act professionally. Don't shout out to the court. I mean, there is a time and a place and you will be given an opportunity or your lawyer will be given an opportunity to speak and make an objection. But it's not the time to just call out. And so, and of course, you know, if you need to communicate with your lawyer, you can do that. Um, a lot of times people use notes um, and just pass it back and forth and just to be respectful of the process. Now, I have some special um, instructions I used to give to my pro se parties in front of me. I actually had a case once where it went to jury trial and the plaintiff and the defendant were pro se 
parties. So they didn't. Ha- neither side had a lawyer. That's the term pro se. Yes, neither side had a, law- had a lawyer. I was the only lawyer in the courtroom. Wow. But I couldn't. I can't advise as a judge. You cannot advise the parties on the law. I did talk to them quite for quite a long time about the process, how to pick a jury, what the trial was going to look like. Plus, I gave them some ground rules. One ground rule was that they were not allowed to argue with each other in the middle trial. They were not to talk to each other in the trial in that way when the court was in session. They would either be addressing me or they would be uh, examining the witness. And when they were examining the witness, it wasn't a time to give a speech. It was a right. time for them to ask questions. That's a very good yes. one. And, and that even applies when you have a lawyer. I, I, some of the things that you're saying, I'm thinking to myself, you know, a client will have a side conversation with me in the middle of something going on and you can't hear it. And I mean, even some of what you're saying is just very practical so that you the trier of the case can understand what's happening in the order of it, much less a jury, as you're saying, a pro se jury to pro se. I, that, that's a lot to think about for how that jury trial went um, where there, because there's the rules matter for a reason for fairness. They're not just there to be, um, make it difficult for people to, to, to advocate for themselves. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, the rules of evidence are there to make sure that the evidence that comes in is worthy of belief, that it's credible evidence, that it's what it says it is. And if you don't know the rules of evidence, it's hard to get the evidence in or object to evidence that's not good evidence so that you have a fair trial. In terms of preparation, and, and a lot, of, as you say, a lot of people have lawyers, but are there other things in terms of, you know, one of the big things in courthouses is your appearance. And I know that there's a lot of talk about that, about, you know, because not everybody's going to be in a suit. There's no law that says you have to be in a suit, but you'll walk into the courthouses and there'll be a sign, you know, no gum, no shorts, things like that. What are some of the other rules besides the ones that are kind of hanging up on the wall that you would suggest as having been the person deciding things that they should wear or not wear or again obviously like the gum in the courtroom that doesn't work um, for a number of reasons but those kind of things that should be common sense but you know we we are a more relaxed society in many ways we're more casual um we dress differently than we did years ago where it was just innate that you dress like you go to church you know, people would wear it. Men would wear a tie. Women would wear a dress. It's changed. So how does what is the balance for somebody in terms of trying to decide how they should look um, within their means when they, they, and what they should do before the court? Well, absolutely. I recognize that not everyone's going to own a suit or very nice, you know, designer clothing. I certainly don't expect anything like that. But to be uh, neat And also, don't expose yourself. I mean, that's, I think that is is something that unfortunately some women and men need to know. And I also would say, be careful with the kinds of uh, messages you send with your clothing. Ah, like logo. I mean, there's a lot of statement clothes going on right now where people have comments on their shirt. Yes. Assert a point of view. Just think about it. Um, I once, I had a probation revocation hearing once 
which is when someone is already convicted and they're on probation and then they violated a term of their probation probation, and they come back to the trial judge and the judge decides whether to um, revoke their probation, which means send them to jail or let them stay out. And I uh, had a probation revocation once where the the defendant just he wasn't doing any every anything that he was supposed to be doing on probation, like checking in or um, I guess taking classes or whatever he was supposed to be doing. He just wasn't doing it. And he came to court with a T-shirt that said lazy but talented. <laughs> and I thought, OK, well, this just this just kind of feeds into the whole story that you're not doing everything that you're supposed to be doing. And he's trying to tell me that he is doing everything he can, but he's wearing a shirt that says he's lazy. Excellent example. I'm going to use this part of the podcast to a couple of my clients. Um, I'm going to transition because we only, I, I could go on and on and on on so many of these things, but you're also doing very important work now at the Georgia Court of Appeals. And uh, we've had one appellate judge already as a guest on this podcast, and you're another voice of that court. And I want to talk about something a little different than I did with him, which is really what is an appellate court? You know, I, I think we use the term that there's such, and you ha have been a trial judge, and then to be an appellate judge, what's the difference? And again, what should be the expectations of a person who finds their case now on that appellate track. Right. So what I like to tell people is about the difference between trial court and appellate court is you look at law and order. You know, those are t kinds of TV shows. I, I want to make um, the sound. I, I need to get my engineer to add the sound now, right now. Dun, dun. <laughs> or yes. I can't even do it right. But we may need to add that to the podcast. So if you watch the law and order, that's a trial. And that's what I used to do. And what happens in the trial court is everything is taken down. There's a transcript. All the evidence is collected. All the briefs, the documents, anything that's filed with the courts collected. And then the losing party um, at, the, at the trial court level, if they are unhappy with the result, then they can appeal. And that's when the Georgia Court of Appeals comes in. Uh, if, it, if it's an appeal from the, the state, uh, juvenile state superior courts, for, for probably the majority of the cases, there are some cases that go directly to the Supreme Court. But for most of the cases, they come to our court. And we, we don't have trials. We take all the documents that have been filed below and the transcripts that have been written up, and we call that the record. And that is sent up to our court, and we read everything like we were there. And on appeal, what happens is that the appellant, the person who brings the appeal, tells us what they think went wrong below. We call those enumerations of error, what errors they think occurred in the trial court that would cause us to reverse what the trial court did. And so we focus on what the party tells us is wrong in the case. We don't just look through and just try to find things that are wrong. We're focusing on what the party tells us. And Meaning so, the lawyer for the person. I mean, and this is, again, why pro se appeals. I mean, it's bad enough to be on your own in a trial court. But at an appellate court level, it's critical that you have counsel to, to lay out 
as you should, the problems that you're saying, because it's not just a complaint like I should have won. You have to isolate a legal reason why you should be able to either challenge a verdict or challenge the evidence that went in. Let's say I said something that was inadmissible about a particular person and the trial judge let it in. That may be an issue for the appellate court to say, sorry, that shouldn't have been there. And that that problem actually supports reversible error, that it's one thing, you know, there's a lot of mistakes in trials. I, I think you find those in the appeals, but not every mistake gets a case overturned. Exactly. So you have to focus on the really big, important errors at trial in your in in your brief, you're writing to the to our court, and we expect that the parties will actually point out in the record by page number the whole record's numbered. So you tell us on what page this error happened, and then give us the law on that. Cite the cases and explain why that was wrong, why the trial court did it incorrectly, made a mistake, and then why it was so significant that would require that the whole verdict be overturned or there needs to be a new trial. It has to be something really significant. And and in making that decision, it's not just obviously the gut decision of the judges hearing it because it's a panel of judges. It's not just one judge that's that's usually handling an appeal, but rather the collective wisdom of the court um, based on precedent, you know, and again, that's another term we use a lot. But um, if we can talk about that a little bit, that, you know, the opinions of your predecessors help control what you're looking at now. Yes. And so I don't know if people realize and people don't look at books as much anymore, but all of our cases that are published cases are uh put together in books called the Georgia Appeals Reporter. And they're also available on services like Westlaw, Lexis, Fine Law. And you can search those cases, those opinions, which not, it does, those opinions don't just say this side wins or the other side wins. It actually explains why. And that becomes the law in the state of Georgia and binds not only the parties in that case, but every other case that could come up after that, that has similar facts or similar issues. And so that's why it's important when, um, when I publish and write an opinion and I want to make sure that it is precise in its language because what I put down, if, the other t- if my two other judges on my panel agree with me and it, go- and it goes out as a, an opinion of the court with the full concurrences, that means it's precedent. It is binding on everyone else. And I don't want to make a mistake with uh, you know, a few words that are careless or vague that would affect all these other cases that will be coming up behind me. And that would explain, because the other thing I think a lot of people don't understand, because when you go to an appellate court and I'm explaining to a client, I'm like, oh, it's several months down the road before we're ever going to hear anything. And that usually surprises them because they're like, but we were just in court and each side got about 10 minutes each to argue. So that was only 20 minutes of argument. Why is it taking so long? So you're filling in sort of the picture of, 
it takes a long time because besides the people in front of you, you are leaving a legacy and law that will affect hundreds, potentially thousands of people beyond that person who was just in front of you. Absolutely. And um, another fact about the Court of Appeals is that we're one of the busiest appellate courts in the country in terms of the number of opinions that and cases that each judge has to handle. So we have a huge number of cases and it's precedent. It's binding on people in the state of Georgia. So we take our job very seriously. And sometimes it takes us a while to get an opinion out. But the good thing about people uh, for the people of Georgia is that our constitution says that we have to get our cases out within two terms of court. So there is a constitutional deadline for us to get your get the opinions out. So you will get an opinion um, about eight months after the case is actually docketed in our court. It's mandated. And I think that's a good thing because it, it keeps us, um, keeps the judges um, accountable and on track. Um, there are many other states and in the federal courts where if you're only in the, if you have an appeal, it could take years to get an opinion. I've experienced that as um, when I was a lawyer, but in in the Georgia Court of Appeals and the Georgia Supreme Court, you will get a an opinion within two terms. That that is a good thing. But for our listeners, because we do have listeners across the country, um, it is a similar process in terms of the appellate process. So that those judges that you go before, that they are concerned about precedent, they are concerned about your individual case. They just may have more time to do it, or the structure of the court is different. But eventually, you do get a written opinion that. Um, for the lawyer, it's fascinating. I'm going to go back to the layperson. It's kind of like they're just hurrying up getting to the bottom line was the word affirmed there. In other words, that they, they preserved their win below or it was reversed. Um, and perhaps they have to start all over again or they've lost their win. And depending on what the type of case is, the case may be able to go forward or not go forward again. So it's, it's interesting re- reading them because I know clients. They just want to tell me, did I win or lose? Um, And not all opinions are even that clear. Sometimes it's a win and a loss that you win certain points, but lose other points um, that may dictate how the return to the trial court is handled. Because there's a little bit of advice sometimes in an opinion that that the lawyers will read kind of saying, well, if it's going to be tried again, you need to be aware of this. So Y'all do a little bit more sometimes than just answering the question before you, but looking ahead on certain times, I would think. Yes. I mean, in some of my opinions where I feel like it's warranted, I do try to, I wouldn't say give general advice, but just generally point out a practice pointer for lawyers. Um, we I need mean, them. Yes. <laughs> you know, a, a common thing um would be uh, just um, pointing out that it, um, you know, you need to, you know, in in, in the appeal, you, you need to cite to the record. We will point that out. You know, we'll we'll continue continue to decide this appeal based on what the law is. But hey, if you if you if you cite to the record, it'll make everyone's job easier and it will make your arguments better. And so we try to we try to encourage lawyers. Uh, in those, in at least I do, in my opinions, with certain things like that. I'm going to take that advice and remember it for my next case. I can't thank you enough for 
sitting with me today and sharing a cup of tea as our practices on Law Talk with BJ. And with every guest, I choose a tea. And this tea is a nod to your heritage, to the fact that you are the first Asian Pacific appellate judge in the Southeast, your Chinese heritage. And it's the first time we've had this type of tea on, and it's an oolong tea, um, a Chinese tea that also has in various readings about the significance of the tea. One of the spiritual parts of it is self-reliance. And as I listen to you and I hear your journey and your family's journey, um, the fact that your forefathers immigrated here and here you are a judge on the Georgia Court of Appeals and how um, that self-reliance, that trusting in yourself and doing the work and not just for yourself, for others as you have stepped into public service. So I've enjoyed sharing oolong tea with you and having your wisdom for our listeners. Thank you, Judge. Well, thank you so much for having me. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein, Esquire.